0: Elliot is the author of Programming JavaScript Applications, and his musings about JavaScript are widely followed online. He's also involved in several nonprofit entrepreneurship initiatives. Eric, welcome to Software Engineering Daily.
1: Thanks. I'm glad to be here.
0: You have said that if you don't know how to code, you're basically going to be illiterate in the future. Why do you believe this? Well,
1: let's, let's just take a look at one industry, all right? Um... In 2010, almost every state in the United States, uh, the most popular job was a driving job. So that means uh, truck drivers or taxi cabs and so on. Um, in uh, before 2020, um, Uber plans to buy half a million self-driving cars. So uh, in the next uh, in the next couple of decades, the currently the, most, um, the industry adding the most jobs to the job market is going to be completely gone. So, um, and, and that's just one industry. That's over 4 million jobs in the United States. And when you add in all of the peripheral jobs that are enabled by those driving jobs, it adds up to be a lot more than that, upwards of 10 million jobs. So, And that's just one industry. And there are similar disruptions happening in every industry across the board.
0: So so why, why is the conclusion that people need to code in order to maintain
1: their literacy? Well, the conclusion is that people need to code because programming computers and, and being able to express to a computer that we need it to do something for us is, is becoming a very um, important form of expression. So, I mean, even just something as simple as running a blog um, there's hosted things like WordPress, but then if you want to do anything fancy, anything non standard at all, that means there's going to be some custom programming happening. So, uh, and everybody across every industry could use those skills. I'm talking about uh, even like musicians use those skills to have custom apps for their fans and so on. And, and most of the musicians who are doing really well are doing really well because they're connecting with their fans online and in apps. And there's a lot of custom code that goes into those things. So universally across the board, every every profession and every industry can benefit from some knowledge of how to code. Do you think everybody needs to know how to write
0: code or just to understand how code works? Or like, I, I also feel like there's all these jobs that can sit in between the human and the computer sort of doing some interpretation level stuff that's not exactly
1: coding? So I think that I think that's important that everybody has a, at least basic literacy in code. In other words, if you want to write some custom app or some custom program that does something for you in particular, you should be able to do that. A lot of time is wasted by professionals in other industries who do not know how to code. Um, It's wasted because they they don't have the skills to automate repetitive tasks that they spend hours and hours every day doing. So, I mean, even just basic automation skills for other kinds of industries like accountants or um, people who are doing business work or projections or anything like that, um, the ability to the ability to let the computer automate your repetitive tasks is huge. I mean, even in, um, even in graphic arts and things like that, there's uh, the ability to like, write custom Photoshop actions in JavaScript is huge for designers even. So, I mean, I don't think that there's any uh, industry out there or any occupation out there where a, a knowledge of how to code would not be a huge benefit. Definitely. So, I think
0: we, we should come back to this broader scope stuff. But I'd like to talk about JavaScript because this is a software engineering podcast. We should talk about some software
1: engineering topics yeah. first and foremost. Why do you love JavaScript? Uh, so, initially, what really drew me to JavaScript, I, I came from a background in classical oriented languages, uh, including C and Java. And then when I started working in JavaScript, uh, I just noticed that everything was a lot easier. Um, a- and the reason for that is that JavaScript is a very, very flexible language, which means that you don't have to set up a custom class to do every little thing like you do in Java. Uh, in Java, like there, there are no verbs. There's only nouns, right? It's uh, like everything is this big object and... And if you just want a function to do something, you create an object and then you can create a function called do or something like that. <laughs> you know, it's, it's ridiculous. Um, JavaScript took all of that away. It made, it made writing functions really, really easy. It, it, made, um, it made repurposing objects and repurposing code really easy compared to um, class inheritance, which had given me a lot of problems in the past so uh, I just really gravitated towards it uh, and it took a long time for the rest of the industry to catch up with me because i was I was writing apps in java in JavaScript um, long before it became popularly known that you could write apps in JavaScript so um, yeah I, I i just kind of fell in love with it and i I couldn't go back I couldn't go back to Java and C++ it just bothered me it felt like I was uh I was getting shackled every time I tried to go back and do something in, in Java or C. So eventually I just stopped.
0: <laughs> well, and so so one of the big benefits of modern JavaScript is that it's monoglot programming. It's not like you have JavaScript just on the front end and you're communicating with a with a back end that's in a different language language. <clears throat> but actually I think some people believe that there are advantages to this polyglot programming like what we have with Rails. Do you think that there's actually a trade-off or do you think it's just better to
1: have monoglot programming? So I think it's better to have universal programming, which, which means you write, you write the app once and it works on the server and it works in your clients. And, and a lot of the uh, – with React Native and things like that, a lot of the same um, – a lot of the same program logic can be re- can be used in your um, your mobile apps and on the web and on the server. So I really think that um, writing the same program four or five times is very overrated. <laughs> but yeah. at the same time, I I can I have a background in a lot of different programming languages. Uh, like I used Autolisp back when I used to do a lot of graphics programming. Um, I used uh, I used Basic and Pascal and Delphi and, and just like all kinds of different languages, uh, uh, assembly language, machine language. Well, while I was coming up and, and learning how to code, um, and I think that it's tremendously valuable to know multiple languages. But JavaScript has become such a flexible tool uh, and so good, <laughs> like. Node is really great. It's a really productive environment to code in. So um, JavaScript on the server is, is really killing it right now. Uh, I've ported a bunch of apps from PHP and Ruby to JavaScript and just seen tremendous performance gains and, and tremendous productivity gains with the teams, um, able to work in the same language on the front and back end. you got to understand that like every time you switch between programming languages, that incurs a cost in um, – you lose the context of that particular programming language when you switch back and forth. Sure. And that, that's a time cost that you undergo every time you move from the front end to the back end. Um, you have to kind of reorient yourself in the program because it's a different program on both ends. Uh, with JavaScript and universal JavaScript in particular, not only is it the same language, it's the same code base. So uh, it just saves a ton of time. And I think that anybody who's not using universal JavaScript is wasting a ton of time and a ton of money. And it's just a silly thing to do, I think.
0: So I'm generally with you. I I did just have a conversation with Michael Hartle, who uh, he wrote all these Ruby on Rails tutorials. Mm -hmm. And one of the things he said that I I thought was kind of interesting is, um, you know, in, in, I feel like in JavaScript there isn't really the equivalent of a Rails in the sense that you don't have this framework that kind of guides you through doing stuff the right way. There's Express, but there's so many ways to do things weirdly in in Express. (laughs) Do you think that that's that's maybe a shortcoming of the current full-stack JavaScript environment where there's no
1: obvious way to do things? So I would say that the Rails, the one way for Rails uh, is an illusion. It doesn't really exist, right? Uh, because Rails kind of pushes you towards their ORM solution, and um, once you try to scale an app uh, and, and turn something from a, a single server application into a, a distributed machine, um, like Twitter learned this lesson the hard way, it doesn't always scale as smoothly as you would you would want it to, and the reason for that is because um, Rails is is really it's not really intended to be used for distributed architectures, a- and it does get used for distributed architectures a lot, but um, but the app architecture that that you're kind of you know you know you're led down this path by Rails uh, you know it's it's a rail you follow the rail right um, you're led down this path that doesn't scale naturally. And, and that's not necessarily a good thing. Um, on the other hand, there are, lots of, there are lots of frameworks like Rails for JavaScript. There's, there's quite a few, actually. Um, not all of them are great for every app, but neither is Rails. So it really depends. In JavaScript, you've got a lot more freedom of choice, that's true. Um, but you also have uh, a lot more platforms that are ready for scale and ready for that kind of distribution. Uh, and Rails just isn't out of the box. Um, you know? what, what were the scalability issues?
0: that? Because you hear Twitter talked about, it's almost like a business school case study of people talking about how it's not scalable and that they had to switch to Scala but what I, I, you know, it was never clear to me what exactly were the scalability issues that they encountered.
1: So specifically with, uh, with Twitter, the, the main issue was that they're using these, uh, they were using the, um, the rails ORM, uh, which basically is, uh, it's, it's essentially a connection to like a relational database model from, um, from the, uh, from the application, uh, business objects. Right. But, uh, what what Twitter really needed was a distributed message queue, and um, that's not what a relational database is. It's not what it's made to do, so um, it it's, it doesn't scale in the sense that if you have an app that is, it's really just uh, posting a bunch of status updates to a bunch of of uh, of different streams. You know, a relational database model an ORM is not the right solution for that. So that's mm-hmm. what really killed Twitter, and that's why they switched to Kestrel, and and they're on a different system now. Kestrel's even outdated now, but um, but that's what killed them, and that's why you saw all those fail whales uh, back in the <laughs> early growth days of Twitter. It was the database. Yeah, it was. Yeah, it was trying to connect to a relational database model when it's really a distributed message queue. At its at its core, that's what Twitter is. It's basically a bunch of distributed message queues. Uh,
0: that's interesting. Um, so you know, but you know, one one thing is like uh, certainly we can talk about the scalability issues, but if especially if we're on the, somewhat on the subject of education and educating new programmers, you know, new programmers are not really. Worried about scalability as much as they are having some kind of guidepost and sure. some, because they all they, you know, like a new, a new programmer just needs to be able to fall into the pit of success because yeah. w- once you've got them onboarded in the sense that like they realize, oh, programming is this cool thing, then they're going to work through whatever problems they encounter. But if they yep. just sit down and they're, you know, if, like if you put a new program in front of C++, that's why there's no coding bootcamps that are C++ because everybody would give up and they would hate it. <laughs> um, I mean, that's just nightmarish to think about. But, um, you know, <clears throat> what, what is the... If somebody wants to learn full-stack JavaScript, what what are the best practices? I mean, how do you how do you approach that? Because, I mean, I, I, I really would come back to Rails as saying, you know, Despite the fact that maybe there is, you know, it's an illusion, the best practice is an illusion, at least there is some sort of best practice.
1: Sure. Uh, and and that's great. There there are systems like that for JavaScript. Um, there was one in particular that was fairly popular. I don't remember what it's called off the top of my head. Um, I think it might be Getty or something like that. Mm. Um but there's several there's several frameworks that that are a little bit more structured than just Express, just bare metal Express, um, and those are worth looking at, uh, especially if you want to get an app up off the ground really fast. Um, and there's systems like uh, Keystone that's just coming up, um, where you can you can essentially click it, you know type a few words and run a generator, and you've got and you've got a web application built for you with the administrator backend and, and you can go and start entering a bunch of custom fields and, and you can look at the architecture of that and, and get a pretty good feel for how to, how to create architecture. Uh, and that particular system uses, uh, an ORM model very similar to, um, to rails. Um, so there are systems like that. Uh, there's, um, Meteor is really cool, just for getting like a, a, a quick real-time app up and running. Um, yeah, it only takes a few minutes to to like start a project in Meteor or start a Keystone project, or you know, there's there's options like that for um, for Node and JavaScript. Yeah. So I wouldn't say that Rails has the exclusive on that. I would say that JavaScript doesn't have a single best answer. But, but that's because JavaScript's ecosystem is, is you know, several times bigger than Rails. Uh, mm. You know, you know it's point. like three times as big as Rails these days. And um, a, a lot of it is still very young and fresh. Uh, you know, Rails ecosystem has matured over the years. Um, okay, let, let me put this in a
0: more honest perspective. Um sure. So I like I was working on a Node app this weekend, and I'm I guess I'm somewhat new to writing full stack JavaScript. Like uh-huh. maybe learned, started learning within the past year, and it's still a little intimidating. Like it still feels a lot different than the Java apps I wrote in the past or the Rails apps yeah. where I felt like things were more cleanly partitioned. It really feels like the Wild West, like every time I'm doing something, I'm like, I know I'm doing this the wrong way. (laughs) But, um, so like, are there some best practices you can give me? Like you've been writing a lot of JavaScript. What are some best practices around full stack
1: JavaScript? So I wrote a book on this topic a few years ago, and those best practices are outdated. What's happening is it's not the Wild West. It's actually like quite a bit before the Wild West. We're in the Cambrian explosion here. So (laughs) this is, uh, it's pretty much, uh, it's pretty much chaos. Um, new systems are coming along every day and (laughs) new best practices are coming along every day. Like the way that I would write an app today is different than the way that I would write an app two months ago. Um, and I understand that that's very frustrating, uh, for new, new developers, it's also very exciting, though. I mean, the flip side of that is that we're seeing a ton of progress. Like, uh, the React ecosystem has just done amazing things to the JavaScript community. And they've, mm-hmm. they've evolved best practices, like, way beyond what people could even imagine a few years ago. And, you know, this has happened almost overnight. It's like nobody's trying to do MVC anymore. Um, because of Rails, or not because of Rails, sorry, but because of React. Um, and I think that that's a great thing. Like, It's really an intimidating thing, and it's hard to keep up, and you just have to be in this mode of constant learning in order to um, stay on top of it. But on the flip side, our application architecture is so much more advanced today than it was just three years ago. Uh, I, like, If I I'm actually writing another book now, and the the stuff about application architecture is radically different than than what I wrote before, and I would not go back. I wouldn't trade it for the world. It's just a much better way to do things.
0: Okay, so what in particular are you talking
1: about that has changed so significantly? So the really big significant change for me is uh, when React came, came along and they um, – They basically showed the world, hey, this this, uh, two-way data binding thing is really a mess, which, of course, people like me have been uh, developing apps for several years. Uh, I've experienced that pain myself in large applications. And um, so the one-way data flow is a really, really important change. And I think it's hard to overestimate the impact of that change. And I think a lot of people think that the virtual DOM was the big thing that uh, that React brought to the world, but the virtual DOM is just one little piece. Um, It's it's a really important piece that being able to abstract um, your rendering target from the code that's that's actually doing your components, that's pretty cool because then you can write a component once And then it'll run on, um, you can be able to run it on React Native or, uh, a web view or render it on the server, which is fantastic. You know, on the server, we don't have a DOM. So, um, so the, the DOM, the writing stuff direct to DOM doesn't work very well for universal JavaScript. Um, so that is a big change, but it's not even the, the real big change for me is, um, is not necessarily the virtual DOM itself or the performance benefits or or anything like that, but it's the just the idea that we have these um, we have this predictable model for creating user interfaces. So, for instance, if you have a component and you feed that component some inputs, you know that that's going to produce a certain output uh, on a certain platform. So, for instance, you can have a component. Um, like a calendar date picker component, right? And you can have the same named component on your web app and in your native app, but the implementations are different. So, like um, your native app might do a, a really cool touch interface that's that's really easy for to use for people who are using the touch screen, while the web app might have a really now a really mouse friendly interface for that same thing, and they might be completely different. And that's okay. But what's really cool is that um, that we can take some reliable tests and say, uh, given this input, this, this widget is going to render in this specific way on this specific platform. And it's totally predictable. And you don't have to worry about the interactions of all the other wid- widgets on the screen and in the, the app. Um, you don't have to worry about other functions stomping on that or messing with the DOM or you know, changing things under your feet um, like we did just a few years ago when everybody was doing two-way data binding. So, I mean, that's, that's huge architectural leaps forward as far as I'm concerned. Um, and the, the move to more functional programming where everything is much, much easier to understand in terms of you give something some inputs and some outputs can be expected every single time and you can count on that. Um, so, so why has this ecosystem
0: shift led away from MVC and towards the Flux architecture? Could you outline your perspective on the Flux
1: architecture? So um, Flux, when I first heard of Flux, I thought, well, I've been doing this for years. It's called the command pattern. <laughs> um, and what what happens is that instead of, reaching out and grabbing some object and calling some methods, instead of doing that, you have actions, you have commands like user intentions that get emitted from the user interface. um, And those get sent to a central central store, a central place where all the state for your application is managed. And, you know, this is kind of how, undo and redo features have been built for a lot of apps for decades and decades. So this is like the the, the idea of the command pattern is nothing new. Um, what's new is the way that we're implementing it in the, in the web platform uh, with flux and flux-like frameworks. I prefer redux. Um, that's the one that I'm using a lot. But what's really interesting about this is that um, when you have a central store and a centrally managed store, and there's a well-known uh, interface for working with that, you can get some really amazing benefits. If you haven't seen the Redux time travel debugger, you should take a look at it. It's uh, inspired by time travel debuggers from Elm. Um, there's one from Clojure called Fig Wheel, I believe. Um, but if you, haven't, if you haven't had the chance to use a time travel debugger and to understand... Uh, what benefits that gives you, check it out right now. Go and, go and watch some demos of the Redux time travel debugging or uh, watch the Elm demo, which is really cool. Um, you can actually go on the Elm website, I think, and play around with like, with, like this Super Mario Brothers clone that, that supports time travel debugging so you can step through back and forth so you can see what I'm talking about. But um, this is a major major architecture shift that was not possible using two-way data binding and it's actually enabled by the one-way data flow and by uh, sending messages rather than just grabbing, um, grabbing objects and mutating them willy-nilly you send messages to a central, uh, a central store and that central store manages your application state for you and that gives you the, f- the full application history and things like that. Um, but that's really enabled by immutability, and people were not making immutable state JavaScript apps. Uh, it just wasn't. It just wasn't done very often. Uh, even just a few years ago, like three years ago, nobody had heard of this stuff.
0: So, as you're writing your new book, uh, what's the name of your new book, by the way? Or what you're writing? So, <laughs> you have a name for it.
1: Yes, yes, there, there is a name for it. Uh, it's called Learn Universal JavaScript App Development, uh, with Node and React. Maybe you should give it a date or, or an edition like like 2016 edition or something. <laughs> it's going to become
0: expired soon.
1: Well, I'm sure I'm going to I'm going to have to update the title when you know if React gets replaced or if Node gets replaced. I mean I swear
0: something. these technical
1: books are like milk, they just expire in like 3 months. It, they do. They do. Uh, in fact, one of the reasons that it took me a long time to do my first book was that I was trying to stay on top of all the changing Developments and, and have like current tech in my book when it came out and have it not be obsolete the day it hit the market. Um, finally, my editor just convinced me, "Hey, you're th- you're three years ahead of the curve anyway. Just just put it out there." So I did. Um, and, and this one, this one, I'm I'm waiting for a little while because right now in, in the React ecosystem, especially the uh, the best practices are really evolving, and um, they're they're not settling down anytime soon. So I'm giving it time, partially on purpose. I know people are um, people want me to put it out like right now. They just want a brain dump, and and uh, they want it available right now. But really, if I put it out now, it would be a disservice to the community, um, specifically because there are big important questions that need answering. Um, in the React ecosystem and the Universal JavaScript ecosystem, for um, what really is the best way to do things? Um, like, for instance, um, how to manage CSS with React components is still a great big open question. Um,
0: okay, sure, but but not not and not to get into like singularity discussion. But what if things are like just permanently moving too fast and like the medium of the book is no longer a valid way to convey information about JavaScript because the field is just going to be evolving for the rest of time.
1: <laughs> yeah. I, I've, I've planned for that. I've got these, uh, online, <laughs> I've got these online courses called learn JavaScript with Eric Elliott and uh, members can sign up there and we do regular webcasts that, uh, that cover um, you know emerging technologies like we've just uh uh the last one we we did a little bit of an introduction to redux and, and react pure components and and um the stuff that we discussed in the last webcast uh, it didn't exist a few months ago so mm. um yeah we're on top of that i'm aware that the 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 whole medium of the book is becoming a, an obsolete idea but people still like to have some piece of paper in front of them and, and read through books. Um, a, lot of, uh, a lot of people will take them on the train or, or just read it when they want to get away from the screen. So mm-hmm. it's still useful um, in terms of just like covering stuff like there's the stuff that changes really, really fast. And then there's the stuff that's just timeless that never ever changes. And it's really possible to kind of merge the two. And, and talk about things that change really fast, but also um, also communicate this sense of this is a timeless principle that is never going to change. Uh, and if you can internalize this principle, that's going to help you become a, a better developer. So, a book isn't just about the latest tech. A book is, um, a, 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 in my opinion, a good book. Also imparts a lot of uh, a lot of software design. Um, wisdom that uh, that's never going to go outdated. Okay. So timeless concepts
0: in JavaScript. Um, I mean, I guess this is JavaScript, the good parts, or are we talking about the prototype model or what, what is timeless in JavaScript?
1: So I I would say principles like composition over inheritance are really timeless. Um, I think that that principle, the composition over inheritance principle uh, applies to even many other languages. Um, it, it applies in Java. It's it's a lot harder to do composition in Java, but um, but it applies in Java. It applies in C plus plus, and it'll it'll apply to next year's version of JavaScript and the year after that. Okay, interesting.
0: So uh, we've touched on React a bit. For listeners who have been working with React. For a while, or or what, even ones who are just learning to use React right now, or what are some subtleties of React that m- they might not know how to take advantage of? And how should? What are some best practices for approaching React?
1: So, um, I, I'm a really big proponent of of class free programming in, in general. Um, hmm. But a lot of people don't don't understand uh, is that you can do class free React, and, and I. I'm a big proponent of class-free React. I like it a lot. Um, Recently, uh, React 0.14 came out uh, early in the summer, I think. Um, And with it came the concept of pure components, which is just a component that is a function, a pure function. So you give it some props, and it returns a React component. Um, And I think that that is... uh, that is a really powerful tool, and that is much more in keeping with the the rest of the React ecosystem and the rest of how React um, how React is intended to be used. Um, I was pretty confused when they um, when they started pushing uh, classes for React components. I was pretty confused because React is supposed to be about reactive programming. But classes are pretty much the opposite of what reactive programming is all about. So um, in particular, I I was afraid that we would see uh, a replay of something that happened when uh, Backbone came out. Um, And that is that people would create these Backbone views and then they would create views that inherited from those views and views that inherited from those views and so on. And what you'd end up with was this crazy, um, object hierarchy that, um, that had a very bad brittle base class problem. Um, they had a super chain that you'd have to walk through when you're debugging. Uh, it's like, it's a real pain. And I'm starting to see people do that in, um, in react components. And that is, first of all, if you're doing that, you don't understand how react works because that's not what what React is all about. If you want to reuse um, component logic in other components, you can share it through modules. Um, you know, share it through common modules that both mm. components inherit from. Uh, you can use higher order components, which lets you compose components um, programmatically uh, instead of using uh, the built in inheritance system in JavaScript. Uh, and that's a much much better way to do so. That's like I was talking about, composition over inheritance is a, an important principle in JavaScript. Mm, um, sure. Same thing with React components. Instead of inheriting from a React component, compose components together in order to get those behaviors. What What is an example
0: of type of uh, of, of functionality that would be okay to throw into a module and and share with different components? So.
1: Uh, lots of different things. For instance, um, a lot of applications need internationalization features, right? So, um, and and a lot of uh, user interface widgets have to display things like button text, right? So one one thing that you can use um, is a module that handles your translations uh, and you can share that across any number of components uh, instead of like, inheriting from a translation component and then inheriting from that uh, uh, subclassing that to create new components just just have all of those components depend on your translation library right uh, and that's a much better way of reusing code yeah
0: okay that's a great that's a great example so we've talked a little bit about the some best practices we've also talked a little about some pitfalls what are some more pitfalls? Like, what are other ways that people could uh, step on their toes? Like, maybe, maybe the best way to to have this conversation if we're not, if we can't, if it's too too much in the Cambrian era of explosiveness, <laughs> maybe we can't find best practices, but at least we can find some things to to Just watch, out, to for. watch perhaps, out
1: for. Perhaps, yeah, perhaps there's a timelessness to things to watch out for as well. Yes. So, in the React ecosystem, in particular there is this library that uh, that is kind of packaged along with React um, called React Test Utils. Um, I don't use Test Utils from React anymore. St- I tried to initially, um, and I quickly discovered that my tests were getting unruly. And the reason for that is because it has a really awkward API. Um, so instead of doing that now, I use pure components, and I use a little library library. Um, What is that library called? Cheerio, I believe. Um, And and what Cheerio is, is uh, it's basically like a jQuery user interface um, for the server. So it's like jQuery, but it works in Node. It doesn't require a real DOM. And uh, it makes it really, really easy to query the output of your React components, just like you would be querying the DOM with jQuery which is a fantastic boon for unit testing React components. Um, one thing that I would watch out for is if you're trying to test um, React component uh, behaviors, so like the click events and, and uh, key ups and things like that in, in React, uh, that can get really difficult really fast because the... The only solid way to do that right now is with the React test utils, and I've got to tell you that that the API for using that is it's like a modern torture device. It's pretty <laughs> it's pretty horrible. Um, I wouldn't use it. I wouldn't. I wouldn't pepper my unit tests with a bunch of uh, awkward API calls. Um, so instead of doing that, right now I'm recommending that. people use use their uh, functional tests instead of trying to do unit testing on React behaviors. So in other words, a functional test is one where you actually control the browser. You take control of the browser and you simulate real browser events instead of of grabbing some React component and and running the simulate calls uh, using React test utils do it through the browser API um, mm. and drive it that way. And, and it's much, much slower, but you need those end-to-end functional tests in your app anyway. And if you've structured your React app correctly, those um, those event handlers should really just be triggering um, user intentions in your application. So instead of testing the behaviors Um, Unit testing the behaviors at the React component level. Um, Unit test the state changes that are supposed to happen in your app as a result. So if you're using Redux, for instance, uh, write unit tests, write your behavioral unit tests against your Redux um, reducers.
0: Hmm. So uh, when you mentioned controlling the browser, what kinds of tools...
1: Do you use for that? Do you use like Selenium or water or? Yeah, so uh, I've been using Selenium WebDriver. I haven't heard of water. Uh, maybe you can tell me a little bit about. Water that is is web application testing in Ruby. I oh, think, okay. but
0: I I think it might it might be usable. Like you can use Selenium on top of it, or so anyway, I, uh, I don't know much about
1: it. Ah, uh, it sounds like uh, maybe a gateway between Ruby and the WebDriver APIs. Uh, that's probably right. Yeah. 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 So uh yeah, you there's actually a couple of really great libraries for using WebDriver right from Node, which is pretty great. Uh I would I would use that approach for now. Um there is a new project by Airbnb that just uh that was just announced and then they immediately changed the name like the the day after it was announced. And um, I don't remember the name, the new name off the top of my head, but I can probably look it up here really fast. Um, Let's see, React Pure. Yep. So I'm going to my GitHub project, the React Pure Component Starter, and I'm just going to grab that name. It is called, let's see, Source Test. components. Here we go. Enzyme. Mm, Interesting. E-N-Z-Y-M-E. And we'll have to get them on the show. Yeah. Yeah. I'm really hopeful for this project because what it looks like they're trying to do is basically create a Cheerio API that can work with React's event systems. So hopefully we'll have a very jQuery like API for testing uh react component events, and then you can unit test your component event systems and and that'll be really great That's the big missing piece for me right now um, mm.
0: so i mean you you've talked about this uh more broadly like you came out with a screen a screencast recently. About test-driven development in ES6 and React. Yep. What What are some of the key takeaways from that screencast that you haven't mentioned
1: yet? I think I've mentioned most of the big takeaways. Okay. Uh, so, um, really, you want to break your unit testing for React components into a couple of different pieces. So, um, you want to you want to test that given a certain a uh, certain set of inputs that you get the expected rendered output for your component. You want to test the component behaviors, which means the event stuff that I was just talking about. Uh, And you want to test that the application state changes happen correctly. So that would be uh, not testing React directly, but testing your um, redux reducers and so on. So um, basically with the Flux architecture, you want to test that when you send... A certain message for a state change that the proper state change happens in your application. So you got to think your test, think of your testing along three different lines, and make sure you're doing that. Okay, so I, you know I, I want to zoom out a little bit
0: because I have a, a question. This in a little more self interest with my own sure. experience writing JavaScript applications. So I I find that I have a hard time. Figuring out like a separation of concerns between the front end and the back end when I'm programming in JavaScript, do you have any ideas around, around how to do that more specifically?
1: A separation of concerns between the front end and the back end.
0: So, um,
1: as I mentioned before, I'm a big proponent of universal JavaScript, which means the front end is the back end. The back end Ah. is the front end, um, so for me, so I'm thinking
0: about it wrong.
1: Yeah, yeah. There is no front end back end. There is only uh, universal.
0: <laughs> so what about how how do teams how should teams be structured then? Like if if you know, cuz there used to be this idea of looking for a back end engineer or a front end engineer. Now are we just looking for full stack
1: people? Now we're looking for universal engineers. So the way that I'm seeing the teams get structured now is that you tend to have um you tend to have designer developers and then you have so those ones will be concentrating a lot on making the user interface components work really great and look really great and respond really well um so those are the those are the designer developers they're they're the ones that are going to be a little bit more design focused and uh, uh maybe a little bit less uh hardcore code focused um and then there are people who concentrate on, who specialize in something like uh, big data or machine learning or something like that, and they tend to be working on um, like deep backend services that have nothing to do with the the ab- application proper, but they provide services for the application, such as um, uh, maybe image recognition or or voice recognition or. Um, you know, things of that nature, or um, like personal assistance type services like uh, Google Now. Um, so there's those people, they're they're going to live in the deep back end and, and write services for the web applications to use. And then there's um, the people that we normally think of as application developers, and they're kind of sitting in the middle stack. They're, um, they're, they're writing front end components. They're also writing um, back end services. They're calling APIs. They're providing API services. Um, but they're sharing a lot of the same code with the guys who are running, writing the front end. And these are typically um, engineers who are writing apps that become uh, what that start, they'll run on a web server. They'll run inside the browser. They'll run inside your cell phones and your tablets. Uh, and that's what we think of normally when we think of apps, is that that whole bringing everything together and um, bringing together the user interface with the web services and the, the API calls and everything. Um, and and those developers, there there is no separation between front-end and back-end. There's just one app that runs on everything. And I think that's the way that things are going, and I think that we're going to see even more momentum in that direction uh, over the next couple of years, over the next two to three years. And I think that this idea that there are people who do server-side programming and people who do client-side programming, I think that idea is going to uh, largely disappear over the next few years, and, and the concept just won't even be there anymore.
0: Okay, talking about even even bigger things um i i have a question that may be kind of naive but I, I was thinking about this a lot as i was interviewing the the react guys from facebook why hasn't anybody written an operating system in pure javascript that just runs on top of node
1: so there somebody has done that actually so um that's i'm I'm not sure that the question is even valid <laughs> so, oh okay uh, well okay um uh why hasn't someone written a
0: popular one <laughs> <laughs> um, so, it, like are we there yet maybe maybe it's the better question or what do we what technologies do we need to get there so the
1: technology is mostly there um what's not there is um marketing and consumer adoption so for instance um um Firefox had a famous uh phone operating system program and that was written on web technologies um before that there was uh there was another uh, another popular one uh was like WebOS something like that um, oh, yeah. several years ago so i mean it's not that people haven't been trying to do these things it's just that um it's it would take a major push from several major companies um, teaming up on the same thing. No, I mean even Facebook, I don't think they could do it by themselves. Um, So for example, Firefox tried to do it, that didn't work. Major cell phone companies have tried to do this. Uh, um, People who were in market leading positions have tried to do it and it didn't work. What what needs to happen for the web standards uh, to win in that department is for it to be a unified web standard effort, which means you would need partnerships from Google. Um, you'd probably need Google and um, Microsoft and Facebook um, working on the same thing at the same time with a shared vision for how it should work and how it should look. Mm. Um, and that's hard to do in the, in the super competitive cell phone market. I mean, just getting uh, Google and Apple to play nice about how cell phones should work uh, going forward, that would be a really monumental task. So it's not really a technology con- consideration that's holding things back. It's more, uh, it is it is a little bit diplomatic. That. Yeah, it's a little bit that, but it's more of uh, how do you get uh, for-profit companies who are competing with each other <sighs> aggressively on owning these markets, how do you get them to work together on something that would be beneficial well, there, to everybody? You know, there are some interesting stories here with like, Uh, you know, Microsoft
0: worked with Google on TypeScript and, um, uh, Facebook is working with Apple on this React native stuff, which is pretty cool. I mean, that's, you know, from a consumer standpoint, but who knows how, you know, how the talks are actually going behind closed doors, (laughs) um, could be a lot more zero sum than we imagine, um, so, you know, I know we're, we're running up against time. I, I, I want to talk some uh, about what we talked about at the beginning and and, and talk some about your backstory. I, f- I found your backstory very compelling. You lost everything in the 2008 stock market crash. Or I don't know yep. if everything is the right word, but a lot. Everything's um, the right word, yes. <laughs> everything is the right word. Okay, cool. Um, interesting. So, you know, you since then you've rebuilt your life and you've become an, an advocate for JavaScript. Can, can you share... The, a bit of that story, um, I you know I've read some of it online. Maybe if you could include some elements that that aren't online or some subtleties, yeah. that'd be really interesting to me personally.
1: Yeah. So uh, in 2008, I was working in the creative industry. And the market collapsed, and um, pretty much overnight, uh, about half of my um, half of my business contacts uh, were laid off from the companies they worked for, and, and the other half, the companies ceased to exist entirely so i i wake up one day in 2008 and my rolodex is completely worthless Uh, and uh, um just a few months before that i was landing some big contracts and i was thinking that everything was going great um and by the middle of 2009 i'd lost everything i i'd had to sell my house and i was couch surfing and um so here's the part that you don't see online is that that's when i chose to um to make a date with my wife. My first date with my wife is when I was couch surfing with a friend and I, I had no home and I had no money and I was like dead broke. And that's when I decided, Oh, this is a good time to woo somebody. (laughs) So, um, but that was very lucky for me though, because she encouraged me to look at programming jobs again. Um, before that I had, um, I'd been making JavaScript apps for a long, long time, um, but I didn't really see a lot of possibilities in the job market for so JavaScript So when you say you
0: developers. were working in the creative industry, were you like a Photoshop guy or what exactly were
1: you doing? <laughs> uh, no, I was like working with uh, advertising agencies and stuff like that on campaigns. So, um, but anyway. Wow,
0: no programming at all. You were just doing marketing.
1: <clears throat> yeah. So, yeah, I, d- I Done a lot of, uh, I'd done a lot of fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. I'd actually got into it through programming because I ran an agency where uh, I basically helped application developers and website owners. Uh, make their applications work better. Uh, so I'd help with things like SEO and conversion rate optimization and uh, user interface optimization. So it's like easier for users to use their inf- interfaces and purchase their products and things like that. Um, and that's what got me into that in the first place. Um, but then it circled back because I, I, you know, I, when I started, I got together with my wife, she was like, you should really be looking at this. And, and I went in and talked to, um, talked to some people. And I realized that JavaScript was suddenly being taken seriously by people before that, like everybody considered it a joke, right? It was just like, uh, this thing to make stuff move around in the browsers. And, and it was like this playful toy that, and they didn't take it seriously as an application development tool. Um, I knew better of course, because I'd been developing applications in it for a long time. Um, But that's what got me uh, really interested in the market and really interested in teaching people how to build JavaScript apps. Because as soon as I got my first, I got a job with uh, Zumba Fitness uh, working on their front end um, architecture. Uh, When I got there, they didn't really have a front end architecture to speak of. And we needed to hire a team. And it seemed like everybody I talked to um, when I was looking for candidates, um, it seemed like None of them really knew how to build a JavaScript application. They knew how to get things done with jQuery and move stuff around on the screen and stuff. But they didn't know how to structure an application. Uh, and that's what, um, that's what encouraged me to write programming JavaScript applications for O'Reilly. Um, and uh, seeing that, that trend that actually has got worse, not better. Uh, and <laughs> you know, there's there's a lot more companies writing great JavaScript apps today, but the um, the need for talent that knows how to do that has outstripped the uh, n- the number of new prospects coming into the job market, the talent market. And,
0: and one one audacious strategy you have for thinking about how to increase that supply of developers is. Fighting poverty with code, or fight poverty with code—I think—is the the name of your initiative. Mm-hmm. Can you talk more about that? And what what are your goals for this?
1: So JS Homes is a not-for-profit organization, and we established it to help people who are homeless uh, learn a great job skill and get into the market. Um, and we're—I'm really excited about it right now because we're just like kicking off a, a major effort to to get that out there. Um it's jshomes.org. jshomes.org. Yeah, um the our website is still going up so uh it's at www.jshomes.org if you want to just take take a quick look but there's not much there yet. But there will be um uh, next year we're going to boost that effort uh in a big way which is I'm really excited about it. I'm really excited. Um so what we're doing is we're teaching the homeless to code, which means that we're going to housing first organizations. And, and I just got out of a great meeting with uh, some people, uh, uh, somebody in that uh, department today. Um, but we're working with those people to establish uh, really great relationships To bring people who have been homeless, who are currently on housing assistance, or even some people who are uh, in shelters and looking for uh, permanent supportive housing situations, we're going to teach them how to code and uh, get them into the job market. So we're looking for partnerships uh, with companies who are willing to hire them. Um, and, And I know a lot of people, when they think of homeless people, they think, of uh, the really, really hard cases where there's serious uh, drug or alcohol addiction issues or serious mental health issues, but that's only about 3% of the homeless population. The vast majority of the homeless population are are transitional, which means like like me, they had a period of really bad luck. They lost everything. They lost their houses and then uh, they were able to find jobs and get back on their feet. So. Um, we're looking for those people who are not necessarily those really really challenging cases but people who are just had a string of bad luck and are capable of of learning and capable of taking on a real job and getting into the job market in a in a realistic way so um and that is like I said the majority of the homeless population so i i I want you to think about that um, when you're thinking about do I want to partner with these people and, and hire homeless people. Don't think of like the drug addicts and the and the crazy people. It's not it's not that's not what we're targeting. We're targeting people who are who are capable, who just need a hand up. Have you talked to Quincy Larson of Free Code Camp? Uh, Quincy Larson of Free Code Camp. No, but I link to Free Free Code Camp on our Learn JavaScript page on Medium. Oh.
0: Yeah, you got to so. talk to Quincy Larson. That guy's like my hero. <laughs> he's he's uh, he runs Free Code Camp, and I think that would be a great resource for uh, yeah. Know, maybe maybe you guys have some synergies or something.
1: Yeah, we absolutely do. I already <clears> refer <throat> people who are uh, who are just getting started. Um, my courses are a little a little bit more advanced. So for people who've had a little bit of JavaScript experience already. Um, but free code camp is really great, uh, at taking somebody who has no experience whatsoever and putting them through some, some great exercises to give them a foundation. Um, and then my courses pick up where that, um, where that leaves off and and teach people how to, how to structure real applications. So, um, yeah, definitely some synergy there. And I'm really, I'm really glad there are resources like that out there. Awesome. Awesome.
0: Well, Eric, uh, it's been super interesting talking to you. Um, we did not get through all my questions, so we're, you're going to have to come back on sometime in the future.
1: It was great talking to you. Um, Do we have time for one more quick plug? Yeah, absolutely. All right. So um, part of our our part of our outreach and educational effort is to, to convince people that we really need to double down on training our kids to learn how to code. Um, so we've got this uh, we've got this a uh, documentary film in production. It's called Programming Literacy. Uh, and you can te- check out the trailer at programmingliteracy.com.
0: Yes, yeah, it looks really good. We'll, we'll put that link in the show notes. Um, and I mean, I'm I'm excited about that initiative myself. I mean, I, I, uh, I wish I would have learned to program much, much earlier. And I'm like, you know, white, upper middle class, uh, <laughs> you know, ha- had as many opportunities given to me as I could possibly ask for. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I, I, I think, uh, I think this is it. Could be a great leveler uh, in our society is um, more access to coding education.
1: Yeah, I agree. All great. Right. Well, uh,
0: well, Eric, it's phenomenal having you on, and um, we'll keep in touch.
1: Yeah, thanks for having me. It's been a lot of fun.